Well, if you would turn back with me to, to the book of the prophet Micah, Micah chapter 5, that will be the, our text for this morning. Micah chapter 5. We'll be looking at, the, at these five verses in a sense, but we'll focus mostly on, on verse 2. So let us read it once again. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one, one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old from everlasting. Well, many of us recognize these words. I'm sure it's not the first time that we've heard them. Uh, they are very familiar words. Perhaps some of us didn't even know where they were exactly on the Bible uh, with chapter and verse, but here it is. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. This is a, a text that is quoted uh, in the New Testament, particularly in that situation when the the wise men uh, come to Jerusalem and they ask Herod the king, uh, where is he? He was born the king of the Jews. And when Herod hears these words, he goes to the, to the religious leaders and he asks them, where, whereabouts is the Messiah, the Christ, to be born? And they quote from this text, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. That's the passage they quote. That's from Micah. They knew this passage. And they quote it because they understood what it meant. From of old, from the time that this prophecy was given, the, the, the religious Jews, the, 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 the faithful, they understood that this passage referred to the one Messiah, the one anointed one that was promised. He was to be born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And Micah prophesied of it. Who was Micah, by the way? Micah was a prophet that lived and prophesied and ministered uh, in the 8th century before Christ. That is, seven, roughly 700 years before the coming of the Lord. 700 years before the, what we read in, uh, in Luke chapter 2. Before those records that we have in Matthew and, and, and Luke particularly. 700 years before he, he ministered. And it wasn't the easiest of times. In fact, it was the, a challenging time in the life of Israel. With the, uh, for two reasons, or uh, for va various reasons, but you could divide them into two reasons. Internally, there was strife. Internally, there was moral corruption. Internally, there was uh, political instability. There was uh, spiritual decay. The people of God were not in a good position. Nothing new under the sun, you might say. But on the other hand, there was also an external threat. Israel was a small nation surrounded by big empires, Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Egyptian Empire, all of these great big nations surrounding them, and they were threatening them. And that's very much what is happening here. 
You read there in verse 1 about the one who will strike the judge of Israel with the rod on the cheek. It, it is God for uh, warning the, the, the Israelites, warning the, the, the Jews that there is strife to come, that there is uh, judgment on the horizon. But it is in this context as well. As so often we see in the prophets, it is in the context of judgment. You could even say not just in the context of judgment. It is because of the judgment that salvation is also coming. It, it's the paradox of, that God brings about salvation through judgment. And it is in this context of this prophecy that we find this promise. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, although there is strife, and sorrow in your future, Israel. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, out of you, though you are little, though you are very small and unimposing, out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. And thus making the promise that God is not done with Israel, that God is not done with the people, that God is not done with fulfilling his promises, the promises that he had made from the beginning in Genesis 3.15, that there would be a seed of the woman, the promise that God had made to Abraham, that he, he, in him all the families of the earth would be blessed, the promise that he had made to to. To David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that he would establish his throne forever. God is here saying that he has not forgotten his covenant. That he has not forgotten his promises. And basically in this small section, God reveals three things of the one who is to come. He, God reveals to Micah and the faithful believers in his day. He reveals to us as well living on this side of the coming of the, of the Lord, three things about the one who has come for us, but who was to come uh, to those living in the, in the days of Micah. Three things. Firstly, it reveals where the Messiah, where Christ was to be born. Secondly, he reveals the nature of his kingdom. And thirdly, it reveals his mysterious, something of his mysterious identity. So let us look at these three things in order. Firstly, let's look again. We have the revelation of where he was to be born. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, because there existed two Bethlehems, at least two Bethlehems, probably even more, but that we have record of uh, in scripture, at least two Bethlehems existed. So God specifies through Micah, it's the Bethlehem Ephrathah. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel. Bethlehem is a name that is composed, is a Hebrew name that is composed of, other, of two Hebrew words. Uh, it's Beth and Lechem. Uh, Beth is, means house, Lechem means bread or food, but typically is, is bread. This is the house of bread. It's the village that is known as the house of bread. It is situated just a few miles south of Jerusalem, within walking distance. If you were to walk from Jerusalem to Bethlehem at, at a brisk pace, you would probably get there in a, about one hour and a half. 
It's about eight kilometers uh, journey. These days, it's a slightly bigger, uh, uh, a slightly bigger town, a small city. It has about 30,000 inhabitants. It is a city that is uh, very much a tourist uh, destination for many. Thousands upon thousands come day, uh, day by day, week by week, year by year to this, to this city to visit it. But it, it is believed and it is uh, understood that in the days of our Lord, in the days uh, that our Lord came into this world, it was but a small village. Maybe a thousand, maybe a couple of thousand inhabitants. It was by no means an impressive uh, city. It was a small village. Even when uh, the, the hymn writer, Philip Brooks, in that hymn, very well-known Christmas carols, O Little Town of Bethlehem, even when he calls it a little town, he is uh, taking artistic liberty. It, wasn't, it wouldn't even come close to being a town. It was really a village. And yet... Yet, this village occupies a preeminent place in the history of Israel. It's in this village that David was born. King David, the, the, not the first, the second king of Israel, the most preeminent king of Israel up until this point. It is in this city, in this village that he was born. It is in Bethlehem that God had chosen to, to bring together uh, Ruth and Boaz. That, his, that wonderful story, uh, that wonderful record in, in, the, in the Old Testament. It's by no means a, 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 a city that, that is unknown. Because God had already been using this city to, to point to something. It occupies a preeminent place, but yet it is a small village. And the question for us as we consider this first point is why? Why was Christ born in such a small and unimpressive place? Brothers and sisters, Christ could have been born in Rome. It would be fitting in a sense. The Son of God being born in the, in the capital of the world's most powerful empire at the time. It would be fitting. But yet that's not where he was born. Christ could have been born in Athens perhaps. The, the place of learning the, the place of wisdom, the capital of culture in, the, in, the, in that day. But he wasn't. Christ could have been born in Jerusalem, the, the, the most important spiritual city, the most important city in Israel, the place where the temple was. The Son of God could have come and dwelt and be born in, the, in Jerusalem. And yet, God chose a small insignificant, unimpressive village. And within that village, God chose an unimpressive stable in a, in a, uh, in a, uh, a manger for his son to be born in. And you ask why? Why did God choose to do so? Because it reveals to us something about the character of the, of the work that the Son of God came to do. It reveals to us something about the character of his work. Christ did not come to be served, but to serve. He came to give his life a ransom for many. He came to identify himself with sinners. The, the mission 
that Christ came to perform was one that required humiliation, was one that depended entirely and in him humbling himself to the form of a servant. He came to take the place of guilty sinners like you and me. And although God the Son, he deserved a palace, we don't deserve a palace. Although the Son of God deserved the, the most glorious birth, the most glorious life in this world. He's the only one that does. We do not. So in fitting, in keeping with his mission, even at his birth, it is clear what he's come to do. Before being exalted, Christ had to be humiliated. And that's Philippians 2 for us. Paul says, let this mind be among you. Let this mind be in you, sorry, which it was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. And being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. Christ was born and humbled himself in this way that we would know from the beginning, not just from the point where he starts his earthly ministry 30 years later, but from the beginning that we would know the purpose and character of his mission. That no one should boast. Paul says this. Paul mentions this in his letters, that he chose the foolish things, that he chose the weak to fool the strong, to shame the strong, that he so chose the foolish things, to shame the wise, that he chose the things which are not. That is us, brothers and sisters. That is the nature and character of the work of Christ. Bethlehem could not have said, if if someone in Bethlehem understood what was happening on that first day of Christmas, on that first day that the Lord came into this world, if someone of, of that little village uh, understood really what was happening, no one in Bethlehem could have beaten their chest and said, oh, God chose our city. God chose our magnificent village because look at how impotent uh, and how uh, wonderful we are. No, because... The, that was not the case. The innkeeper could not say, oh, God chose uh, his son uh, to be born in my inn because look at how wonderful my inn is. No, he was born on the stable. Even the carpenter that put uh, together the manger, he could not beat his own chest and say, look how wonderful my craftsmanship is Look at how wonderful God chose this wonderful bed that I made so that is this wonderful crib that I made so that his, his only begotten son would be born in it. No, he was born in a feeding trough. He was born in a manger so that no man should boast. So that God would be exalted for choosing freely and unconditionally to stop every mouth from taking any credit whatsoever in what God does. That is the meaning of God choosing the little village 
Bethlehem Ephratah, the insignificant village, the city of the, the city of David. He does not elect cities or people because they are preeminent, because they deserve it. He elects because he is free to do so in order to magnify and in order to magnify his grace and mercy he chooses the the unwise the foolish things of this world so that he receives the glory you see the problem of this world brothers and sisters the problem of this world is sin and sin can be summarized very simply in one word as well or it can be uh, defined very simply in one word pride isn't all sin pride Rebellion against God, thinking ourselves to be able to define and decide our futures, thinking ourselves to be able to earn and merit uh, our salvation, isn't all sin pride. And therefore, as the Son of God comes and deals with pride, he comes representing for us the way of humility, that we may walk in that path as well. The Messiah was born in this little town, in this village of Bethlehem. But God did not only wish to reveal to us where he was born with pinpoint accuracy, but he wished to reveal to us also something of the character of his kingdom. Let's look again. I hope by the end of this of this sermon you will know Micah chapter 5 verse 2 by heart. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. The one to be ruler in Israel. And there are two, two things here that our text points to about him who was to come. Who, about him who was to be born in, Jer in Bethlehem. He's, he is one who is to be a ruler. The word there conveys authority, dominion, power, control. The one to come is one who will exercise rule and dominion over Israel. But did you notice as well, it doesn't say, out of you sh shall come to, uh, to you. It says, out of you shall come forth to me. It tells us something about the nature of this rule. The nature of the rule of this Christ, of this Messiah who is to come, is for the glory of God. It's come forth to me. You perhaps remember this. Some of you have been in the, in the evenings. We've been going through 1 Samuel. And last time, we, uh, two weeks ago, we stopped at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16, if you remember, is the point where Saul has been rejected as king for pride, for rebellion. And God says to Samuel, why are you sorrowing? Take up the horn, your horn, and go to Bethlehem. For I have chosen for myself a king. This king that God has chosen is not a king according to the hearts of men. It's a king according to the heart of God. A king who performs the will of God. A king who is submissive to the will of God. A king that directs, and as the chapter four, uh, verse 4 says, a king that stands and feeds his flock. A king that shepherds the people. 
in the will of God. And like Saul, David, with, with flaws nonetheless, but David was a king according to God's heart, a king that performed the will of God. And that's the nature of the, of the kingship, of the rule of this who is to come. The promise is, is that it is one who is com coming forth to, for God the Father, for the God uh, to rule in, uh, in God's uh, way. In other words, he is the one who will come from him and for him. And we see that prophecy being fulfilled today. What is the nature of the kingdom of God? But to do the will of the Father. To be obedient to the will of God. There is this wonderful interaction between our Lord. And I believe, I didn't write down the reference, but we'll find it in a second. Um, this wonderful interaction between our Lord and the uh, and uh, Pilate, when, uh, when our, our Lord is being brought to judgment in Pilate's court, and he asks him, uh, verse uh, chapter 18, are you the king of the Jews? Natural question. What is the nature? Or are, you the, are you the king of the Jews? That's what the Jews are saying of you, Jesus. You are the king of the Jews, so you're accused of sedition and rebellion. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says to him, Are you speaking for yourself? Are you inquiring this out of your own heart? Or did others tell you this concerning me? Are you looking for the king? Or are you just blurting out secondhand information? And Pilate says, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. And he says to him, Jesus, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But my, now my kingdom is not from here. What Jesus did when he came to establish his kingdom was not a kingdom like the kingdoms of this world. He chose 12 disciples, 12 apostles. He did not teach them to fight with swords. He taught him to be obedient to the word of God. That is the nature of the kingdom of God. He goes on to say, you say rightly, or in this case, Pilate uh, presses on the question, are you the king then? Are you the king? And Jesus says, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. Again, the message of Christmas. Why was Christ born? For this cause I was born. And for this cause I have come to the world that I should bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And what is it that Jesus taught his disciples? But to be obedient. But to be uh, obedient to the will of God. What, it, what does it mean then? To be obedient to the will of God. What, it mean, what does it mean then to be of the truth? It means to love the truth. Christ is the truth means to be obedient to him. Those who are his people, he says, hear and love my words. You do not believe because you do not belong to my sheep, Jesus says. Because if you were one of mine, if you were one of, of my sheep, again, the, the language of Micah chapter 5, verse 4, if I was your shepherd, you would listen. 
You would hear my voice and you would follow, but you don't. Or as Jesus says in John 8, verse 47, he who hears of God, hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. That is amazing. And that is the nature of God's rule as revealed in Micah and as fulfilled in the Gospels. And as we see or should see in our own life, you want to know if you're a Christian? You want to know if, you're, if you are uh, a part of the, of the kingdom? Are you obedient? Do you love the words of Christ? Do you, long, do you hunger and thirst for truth? That was the problem with Pilate. That was why Jesus was asking me, are you asking this of your own self? Or is it secondhand information? Or is it just idle curiosity? Because if you're asking this of your own self, if you have this hunger and thirsting for truth, that is a proof that you are mine. That's the second. And now thirdly, it also reveals something about the extraordinary nature of this one who is to come. If you were perhaps reading this passage and paying attention, and if you didn't know, perhaps this is the better way of expressing and if you didn't know uh, Christian theology, imagine that you don't know the New Testament. Imagine yourself. I, saw, I often imagine myself when reading through the prophecies of the Old Testament. Imagine myself so, as someone, which is impossible to do, uh, by the way, but as someone who had no knowledge of the New Testament. Imagine yourself as a faithful Jew reading this prophecy in Micah chapter 5. But out of you, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. And now is the confusing part, if you don't know the New Testament. Whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. This is the third thing, this mysterious nature of the one who is to come. It's slightly contradictory, isn't it? We understand being born coming into existence. Yeah, I'm born. The day I was born is the day that I, uh, well, I already existed in the womb of my mother, but being born is coming into existence. You didn't exist before conception, if, if, you, if you take it that far. But being born is to come into existence. And yet here, the one who is to come is said to be born, but he is also said to be from of old, whose going forths are from of old, from everlasting. It's, it is a puzzling text, and it is not the only place. Isaiah 9, 6 kind of says the same thing to us, doesn't it? For a child was born, and to us a child is born, and to us a child is given. And he's everlasting father, the mighty God. Well, that makes even... Uh, less sense. God being born? How can God be born when Isaiah in, in other portions of scripture says that God is without beginning? Have you not known? Have you not heard? Isaiah says, chapter 40, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth. He never had a beginning. The everlasting God. He is called in Isaiah 9. 
the, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. Brothers and sisters, what happened 2,000 years ago, nearly, or 2,000 and something years ago in Bethlehem was the most wonderful miracle in the history of humanity. It was the, the most wonderful thing that mankind not even could have ever imagined. I, I don't think you could have ever come across the, man, the minds of men. The creator of the heavens and of the earth, the sustainer of everything. As John Wesley says, I, I, don't, know, I don't know if it's easily accessible, contracted to a span and dwelt among men. The one who was in the beginning with God and was God. The son of God, the only begotten. The one we beheld his glory. He became flesh and dwelt among us. That is the great message of the gospel. Because, because, because had it not been for him coming, we would be without hope. The great problem that we have is that we have sinned. That we have fallen short. That we deserve the judgment of Micah chapter 5 verse 1. That we, judgment is coming. And judgment is unavoidable. That judgment needs to be brought upon those who have broken God's moral law. And the great message of the gospel is that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The good news is that God sent his only begotten son to live and to die in place of sinners like us. That is the, the wondrous thing that the one was perfect without beginning and without end, the one who was from of old, the one who created everything, came and lived and died so that God could forgive such rebellious creatures as we are. So you see why is it, it, it is so blasphemous. I hope none of us still believe this here this morning. But you see why is it, it is so blasphemous for us to think that we can earn our way to heaven. Can you imagine the blasphemy of thinking that you can earn, uh, that, of you believing that you can earn your way to heaven when God had to send his only begotten son, a perfect son, to live and die for our sins? We cannot earn it. We could never have done it. Every single attempt that we, even if we wanted to make, which we understand from scripture that there is no will in us to make unless the spirit works in us. But even if we wanted to try, even if we had the will transformed to be uh, willing to, to give our best, our best to earn salvation would still fall ridiculously short of the high price that our sins have brought upon us. We would not be able to fill that measure because it took the perfect righteousness, perfect obedience of the most glorious being in the universe, God the Son, to come to su supply 
that great need. So it is blasphemous for us to think that, oh, well, you know, I'm a good person. At the end of the day, I, I know God will, 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 uh, will uh, save me because I'm a good person. Because I try to do, to do uh, good. Because I, I try to live by, by good moral standards. Blasphemy. That's what it is. We would never be able. But God was. And God did send his son. To obey the law perfectly. Through all throughout his life. Never sinning. To die a vicarious death on that cross, death that his people, that those he came to save deserved, so that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, no longer perishes, but has eternal life. That is the greatest gift of Christmas. The greatest gift of Christmas, the greatest gift that can ever be given to anyone is the gift of Christ, the gift of eternal life. And the way to receive this gift is simple. Faith, belief, simple trust. Doesn't require anything else. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved by grace alone, through faith alone. The sum of the matter in this third point is this. Christ existed before he was born. From all eternity. As the perfect reflection of God's glory. The exact imprint of the image of the Almighty. And therefore, he was the only one who was perfectly suited to come into the world. And to bear witness of that truth to live that life, to die that death, and to be our Lord and Savior. Nevertheless, even though we might have in life in him, and he says, I came that you may have life and life abundant, nevertheless, the warning is there. And I'll finish by reading this. And this is the condemnation. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and men loved ra darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth, again, he who is of the truth, he who is following the truth, who is, whose Lord is the truth, the way and the life, but he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. That every one of us would prove ourselves to be of the truth this day, that every one of us would know the Savior who was to come, who's going forces forts are of old and that we all would know the one who is the, the king, the shepherd that we would be fed and strengthened in him and as it says there, that, that we would abide in him to the ends of the earth that we may have
peace. Because this one shall be peace.